turn to Exodus chapter 28. We continue our series in the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, uh, words will be on the screen behind me. Also, in, uh, in the Christ Church East app, you'll find a sermon listening guide and the scriptures printed on the top there as well. Exodus chapter 28, we will not be reading the whole chapter, uh, just some select verses throughout. Starting in verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Down to verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. Down to verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Verse 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. Down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim, and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And then down to verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. In December of 1952, a toxic mix of fog and black coal smoke mixed together in London, and ended up killing thousands over a period of four days. It's one of the worst environmental episodes in history. And here's how it happened. It was cold, and so people were burning their chimneys, and they were putting coal in the chimneys, and as the smoke came out, it mixed with the natural fog, and it got colder and colder. And as it got colder, people put more coal in their chimneys, and more smoke came out, and this dense mix of fog and of coal smoke got so heavy that it, gained, it, it, it produced a darkness that had about one foot of visibility in the city. And it was this dark coal smoke that descended that ended up killing thousands. The descriptions of what happened were striking. Roads were littered with abandoned cars. Midday concerts were canceled due to total darkness. In the British Museum, they found smoke lurking in the book stacks. Cattle 
in the city's market were killed and thrown away before they ever had a chance to slaughter them because of this black coal and this soot that had descended on the city. They called it London's killer fog. That's what it's been known in history. And it really is a metaphor of the deadly darkness of our world, a deadly darkness that manifests in all kinds of ways, hatred, violence, division, killing, cruelty, addiction, greed, indifference, all these things that we have seen on a heightened display over the past year. The question is, in a dark world that we live in and that we see, how does God reconcile such a world to himself? How does God reconcile a dark world, his creation, to himself? If you spend time looking at the news or you've spent time on social media, you'll find hundreds of proposed solutions of how to make the world right how to reconcile the world to a place of rightness, and yet none of those man-made solutions today or in history have ever been able to do that. So how does God reconcile his world to himself? First, we're gonna see it's through a person. It's through a person. The story of the Bible, the entire story of the Bible is a story of reconciliation between God and between his broken creation. And, and what you'll notice through the Bible from start to finish in the story of reconciliation, that reconciliation is always centered on and always accomplished by one person. It's never accomplished through a kind of a refocused goodness of humanity. It's never accomplished by a, a, a new set of moral values. It's never accomplished by a new philosophy of the day. The Bible's a story of reconciliation accomplished by one person. And in Israel, in the Old Testament, that one person, or that person was the priest, specifically the high priest. Exodus 28 describes the high priest of Israel, and specifically the garments that the priest wore. And what we learn is that through the priest's clothing, what the priest wore powerfully communicates how God goes about reconciling his world. So three pieces of the priest's clothing that were really important for communicating this. First was the ephod, and that's described in verses 6 to 14. It was basically a long, sleeveless, apron or vest that had shoulder pieces, think suspenders. And then there were two stones, and there were six names on each stone, 12 names total, engraved on these stones that was attached to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And these 12 names represented the 12 tribes of Israel, representing God's people that needed reconciliation. Second half of verse 12. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. The word bear, which shows up numerous times in this chapter, means to carry. When the priest put on his ceremonial robes, 
He carried the people on his shoulders and he carried them into the presence of God where they would find healing. The priest would carry a sinful, broken, wounded people into the presence of God where they would find healing. Several years ago, my family was walking back from the neighborhood park in our neighborhood, and, and as we got closer to the house, the, our two kids ran ahead to the house. And this was at a time where our garage door was broken, so you had to manually lift the garage door. Long story short, my son, in lifting the garage door, ended up gashing his forehead. So as we get closer to the house, we hear yelling, we hear screaming. So our nice little walk turns into a sprint into the garage where I see my son with blood all over his face and a puddle of blood on the concrete garage floor and my sweet daughter holding a paper towel to his forehead. When we got in there, I carried him inside. And when we looked at this gash, we realized quickly that this is not a Band-Aid solution. He needs stitches. So I carried him into the car. Then I carried him into the ER and carried him to the room where the doctor would stitch his forehead up so it could heal. The high priest put the people on his shoulders and carried them into the presence of God where they would find healing. That's the first piece of clothing. Second piece of clothing that the priest wore that's important was the breast piece described in verses 15 to 30. It was basically nine inches square, roughly. It was attached to the ephod on the priest's uh, chest, and there were 12 gemstones on the breast piece. Those 12 gemstones represented the 12 tribes of Israel, representing God's people. And it was an emphatic statement that God's people were his treasure. That's why they were gemstones. When the high priest put on his ceremonial robes, he carried the people close to his heart. Verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. Verse 30, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. That phrase, on his heart, is repeated three times in those two verses. The message was clear. The priest carried the people close to his heart. But then you have the breastpiece of judgment. What's that word judgment mean? Well, in the breastpiece were the Urim and the Thummim, and those were basically the means by which God would reveal his will to the priests for the people. So over the centuries, those were used to, to determine what God's will was for his people. Another way to read it would be that the priest bore the, the means for making decisions on his chest, close to his heart. So the priest, again, that word bear means to carry, carried the people close to his heart, and he carried God's will close to his heart. 
So God's people learned to trust God's revealed will. And his people and his will were never at odds. So the people learned to trust God's sovereignty, his will, and they learned to trust his goodness because both the people and his will were close to the priest's heart. It was a while back I had to take my son to get blood drawn, the theme of blood here. He had to get blood drawn because the doctor needed to have blood results to know what was the best and wisest decision for treatment moving forward. So I carried my son to the place where the blood gets drawn. We went into the room. I sat down in the chair. I put him, sat him on my lap, and all was good until that pretty large needle comes out that they stick in your vein to draw the blood. And he saw that needle, and he was ready to bolt for the door. Panic and anxiety, tears set in. What did I do? I gave him a massive bear hug. I wrapped my arms around him. I held him tight while they drew the blood. I held my son close to my heart. And I held the decision to get blood drawn close to my heart. Even though it was really hard, it was the best thing for him. The high priest carried the people close to his heart and he carried God's will close to his heart. God's will and his people were never, were never at odds. The third piece of clothing that the priest wore that's important to understand was the turban, basically what went on the priest's head. Engraved on this turban, verse 36 says, was the phrase, holy to the Lord. Verse 38 it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Even Israel's best offerings were tainted with sin. And so the high priest would bear the guilt of that sin, even in what they tried to offer as their best. So the high priest would carry his people into the presence of the Lord, and then he would carry their sin and guilt away through the blood of a sacrifice. He carried away their sins so that they could stand in the presence of God where they would find healing. Now, here was the problem. The high priest was sinful. The high priest himself was a sinful man. And therefore, chapter 29 of Exodus describes how when the high priest would go in, he would not only bring a sin offering for the people, but he'd bring a sin offering for himself because he was sinful. As we look through Israel's history in Exodus, eventually the priesthood would completely break down. 
In fact, the prophet Hosea says in Hosea 3, 4, the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod. There came a day in Israel where there were no more priests that would put on the ephod, put on the breastplate piece. They would no longer bring sacrifices for the people. The priesthood absolutely broke down until eventually the great high priest would come. The great high priest described in Hebrews 4.14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, whatever the high priest did for the people in the holy place of the tabernacle, Jesus has done for you in the heavens. Jesus has done for you in the heavens. This is even, this detail is picked up in John chapter 19. When Pilate brings Jesus to be crucified, the soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus. And then after he's crucified and the soldiers begin to divide the garments, John makes this note. He says, Jesus' tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Why that detail? Because the high priests in the Old Testament wore purple and they wore a seamless tunic. John was making it clear that Jesus Christ was the great high priest. As Isaiah 49, 16 says, you are engraved on the palm of his hands, right next to the nail scars. Years ago in our neighborhood, where we oftentimes go on walks, they, they replaced this section of sidewalk. And when they had ripped it up and they had poured the new sidewalk, it was probably a couple days later, maybe a week later, we, we went on a walk as a family. And as we're walking over this brand new, beautiful, piece of concrete, we noticed that one of our neighbors, no longer in the neighborhood, had written their daughter's name in the wet concrete. Now, that was several years ago. We've had several hurricanes since then, numerous bikes, scooters, skateboards, hoverboards have ridden over that name, lawnmowers, Edgers, string trimmers have scraped it and hit it. Tree branches have fallen on top of it. Dirt and debris has fallen, uh, collected on it. Guess what name is still on that sidewalk? The daughter of our previous neighbor. Your name is engraved on Jesus' hand. There is no pain, there is no sin, there is no suffering, there is no rejection that can remove your name from his engraved hands. You may look at your life, your broken past, and you may think, 
I wasted so many years of my life. I've got so many regrets of what I've done. There's so much brokenness in my past. Here's the other truth about what Isaiah 49, 16 says, that you're engraved on his hands. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you are looking to him alone for salvation, then your broken past is not wasted. Because right next to your name, on his hands, are the nail scars. Which tells you that pain is never wasted. Jesus' pain was not wasted. It accomplished your salvation. And that means that your broken past can only be used for your good, God's glory, and the reconciliation of those around you. That brings us to the second point. How does God reconcile a world to himself? Through Christ, but second, through you. Through you. Christ is the great high priest, but those who are engraved on his hands are a kingdom of priests. God takes his people and rescues them out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and then he says to them in Exodus 19, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, picks up this language in the New Testament in his letter to describe the church, the community of people who have put their trust in Jesus, and he says this in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a priest with a message to proclaim to a people around you that are walking in darkness. And that message is a message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The man who penned those words in 2 Corinthians was the Apostle Paul, who had an incredibly broken past. He murdered Christians. He put him in prison. But then Jesus got hold of him, met him, reconciled him to God, 
And, and after Paul's conversion, immediately after his conversion, people couldn't believe it. They were asking the question, is this the same man? Some of you have a similar story. Some of you have an incredibly broken past. And yet God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus Christ. And you have a powerful story to tell. It's a message of reconciliation, of how God rescued you. On March 10th, 1974, Lieutenant Hiru Anada was the last World War II Japanese soldier to surrender. He had been put on an island in the Philippines along with the other Japanese soldiers, and he was told that you are to stay here and complete the mission even if Japan surrenders. Well, that, that's what happened. Japan surrendered. They moved their, their troops out, except four soldiers were left on the island, Onada being one of them. In 1950, six years later, one of those soldiers surrendered. In 1954, another was killed in a skirmish with local police. That was 10 years after the surrender. And then in 1972, another one was killed. And that left Anada as the last Japanese soldier who refused to surrender. In an attempt to get him to surrender and realize that Japan was now an ally of the United States, that the cease order had been ordered. They, they, had a, they had loud announcement, loudspeakers that would blast it into the jungle, into the forest where they thought he might be, telling him that the, the surrender had happened. Japan was an ally of the United States. He could come out and return, and he didn't. They dropped leaflets into the jungle to try to get him to surrender, and he didn't. Some 13,000 men were used to try to locate him. A half million dollars were tried to use to locate this man. He wouldn't surrender. He spent almost 30 years out there. Killed at least 30 nationals during his personal war. And then finally, on March 10th, 1974, about 30 years later, he finally surrendered because he received a personal message from his former superior officer detailing the ceasefire order. And so he surrendered. Many people wage decades long fights against God. A battle against God who has accomplished and announced reconciliation and peace that has been accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. And this battle against God manifests in so many different forms. Manifests in working way too many hours on the job and in career and ruining a family. It, it manifests in addiction to drugs and alcohol. It manifests in jumping from relationship to relationship. It manifests in inordinate amounts of entertainment it manifests in just deep senses of anxiety and worry. All of these are symptoms of an unreconciled relationship with God. 
as a new creation. If you've placed your trust in Christ, you have a message of reconciliation to bring to these people. And someone, someone brought the message of reconciliation to you in your war against God. Your broken past, all your regrets, all the pain in your life, all that you look at and said, what a waste. God says, no. No, because if you're in Christ, you've been engraved on Christ's hands from eternity past, which means your story can only be for good, for God's purposes, and to be a story that he uses to bring the message of reconciliation to others who are still at war with God. Oftentimes, when we talk about reconciliation with God, we talk about those outside the faith, those who have not placed their trust in Christ. But when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 about a message of reconciliation, he's writing to the church in Corinth, to people who have fallen into sin, who need reconciliation. Pastor Howard Hendricks, pastor for many years, and he had a dear brother in ministry that had a horrendous moral collapse. It was a bad fall. It was a bad case. And yet, by God's grace, this man was restored into ministry. And after the fall and the many years that it took of restoration, when he was finally back in ministry, Howard Hendricks had a conversation with him, and he said, hey, I need your help. I need to pick your brain. Where are we failing as a church? And this is what this man, who had been restored and reconciled, this is what he said. Howie, when I fell into sin, it was like going down in the surf for the third time. I was looking over at the shore that was filled with believers that I knew, some of whom were crying, isn't that tragic? some of whom were cursing, saying, you're supposed to know the word of God. Why did you allow that to happen to you? And there were some who were wringing their hands saying, what can we do? But there was only one who risked the surf to pull me out while I was going down for the third time. Who is drowning in your sphere of influence? Who has Christ sovereignly put in your life to hear the message of reconciliation? Jesus, the great high priest, has reconciled you to himself and he's made you a kingdom of priests and given you a ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, 
For those of us who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, there was a moment, there was a time, there was a season, maybe years where we were recipients of the message of reconciliation, maybe from our parents, from our early toddler years, if we grew up in a Christian home. For others of us, maybe in college, when we heard that message of reconciliation, that we can be restored into relationship with God through Christ. For some of us as an adult, coming out of many years of an addiction. But if we're in Christ now, we heard the message of reconciliation. Father, you have made us a kingdom of priests to represent you and to represent people before you and to bring the message to them. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, would you place people on our hearts that you have sovereignly put into our lives to hear the message of reconciliation, to see it lived out in a marriage with a family at work and with coworkers? Would we be a people who are faithful ambassadors for Christ, knowing that God is making his appeal through us? Father, thank you for reconciliation. Thank you that we have peace with you through Christ. And it's a peace now in a very broken and hard and painful world, and it's a peace for eternity. Would you help us to sing and worship you in response? In Jesus' name, amen.